We're turning in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel again, chapter 4, to what is the fourth and final parable recorded by Mark in his Gospel record of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. And I trust that uh, these parables, Sunday mornings, have been a blessing, an encouragement, a challenge, a help to you, certainly have been to me, and I think this last one will be no exception as we expound it today. We're beginning to read at verse 30, and we read down to verse 34, although we'll not really be dealing in detail with verse 33 and 34, because we covered that ground as it relates to certain truths already in the passage that we covered it in previous weeks. We'll begin to read at verse 30. He, the Lord Jesus, said, Whereunto shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what comparison shall we compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when it is sown in the earth, is less than all the seeds that be in the earth. But when it is sown, it groweth up, and becometh greater than all herbs, and shooteth out great branches, so that the fowls of the air may lodge under the shadow of it. And with many such parables spake he the word unto them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable spake he not unto them. And when they were alone, he expounded all things to his disciples. Verse 30, 31, and 32 give us what I've called the parable of the growth of the mustard seed. Now, we learned in previous weeks that parables in general are essentially comparisons. They're throwing one thing along aside another thing in order to help us understand it a bit more. But perhaps what I haven't labored as much in these previous studies is these parables are somewhat different to other parables that we read in the Gospels because these parables come under the classification as being parables of the kingdom. Now, if you want a more detailed record of the parables of the kingdom, they are found in Matthew chapter 13. And we're not going to take time to look at those. But some of them are here in Mark chapter 4. Louis doesn't record as many as Matthew. And they are addressed, as we see, both to the multitudes, the great crowds, and also to the disciples. So what would happen is the Lord would... We would deliver the parable to everyone, and then in private he would explain the meaning to his own disciples. And so, therefore, there were those who did not understand, would not understand what was being said because their hearts were so hard. And then there were others who would understand because they had hearts ready to receive, their hearts were good soil to receive the seed of the word. There's also something else important that we haven't highlighted regarding these parables of the kingdom, not only in Matthew 13, but here in Mark 4. That is the timing they were delivered. That is crucial. Because as we look at the context regarding the timing, these four parables were given immediately after the religious leaders in Judaism had avowed to destroy the Lord Jesus Christ as an imposter. They rejected him as Messiah. Indeed, if you look at chapter 3 of Mark's Gospel, 
and just scan down from verse 22 to 29, you will see there they committed the unpardonable sin. And we saw that in a general sense, that was to harden your heart against the ministry of the Spirit. But to the nation of Israel, the people of God, they hardened their heart against Messiah. And that was, in this context, the unpardonable sin. And so the timing of these parables of the kingdom is important to note that as Matthew 13 verse 1 says, on that same day, the very same day that this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was committed, the Lord Jesus spoke the parables of the kingdom. Now, what is the significance of that? Well, they had rejected the king, and so they would not have the kingdom, at least at that moment. So what happens when we're given the parables of the kingdom is the kingdom takes what some have called a mysterious form. Or it's internalized in the hearts of men and women. Until that is Christ returns and sets up his kingdom in a manifested form. And this certainly is one aspect to the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now... A mystery in the Bible simply is a truth that up to now has not been revealed. It's a new revelation. Matthew 13, in the other record of the kingdom parables, Jesus says that in verse 35, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Colossians 1.26 concurs with this. Paul says, Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints. So the parables concerning the mystery of the kingdom, which is what we have here in Mark 4 and in Matthew 13, must impart some kind of new information that was never revealed before. That's important as we understand it. When we think of that, we need to then ask, as we revise where we have already been, what was new in the previous parables we looked at? We'll think of the parable of the sower, the seed, and the soil. The new revelation was that the word of the kingdom would be sown during this interim period when the Lord Jesus is absent, and it would be sown with various degrees of success. We'll not go into that, but you will remember uh, how we expounded that. And then the parable of the lamp and the stand. The new revelation is Christ's light must be shed abroad and set on a lampstand. And we saw that we are that lampstand, the church and specific Christians, uh, also in their individual capacity. Then last week we looked at the growth of the seed. What is the new truth there? Well, simply that the Lord would be absent, but during his absence, after his first advent, in anticipation of his second advent, the seed would grow, though it would be imperceptible. It still would grow. God would give the increase, and one day there would be a harvest. That was never known before. These are new truths. Now, here's the question. What is new here in this parable of the growth of the mustard seed? It's harder to find. And many Bible commentaries and expositors have floundered on this simply because they haven't been able to find what the new truth is. And they just simply say, well, the truth is that Christ's kingdom will spread across the globe. Now, that is true, and that is something that seems to be indicated by this parable. 
But that truth in and of itself was something that was known from way back in the Old Testament. So it doesn't comply with what the mystery is that has to be in the mystery of these kingdom parables. For instance, Daniel 2 and 34 and 35 says, A stone was cut out without hands, which smote the image upon his feet that were of iron and clay, and brake them to pieces. Then was the iron and the clay, the brass and the silver and the gold, broken to pieces together, and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, that no place was found for them. And the stone that smote the image, the stone figurative of the Lord Jesus, coming again, became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And that would have been known to have corresponded to Messiah's kingdom. And so Daniel and other of the prophets have prophesied many years before Jesus giving these parables that Christ's kingdom one day would spread across the globe. So what then is new in this parable of the growth of the mustard seed? That was previously unknown. Let's look at the parable's teaching first of all. And it's left up to us to interpret it because the Lord doesn't interpret this parable for us. Now there are two interpretations that generally have been given. The first is that this great tree that grows forth from this mustard seed pictures the extension of Christianity, which alone starting from small beginnings in the Lord and his apostles uh, finally spreads over the whole world. Now that is true to an extent. But in my opinion, and the opinions of godlier men, that interpretation does not fit either the content of the parable or the context of the parable. Now let me deal with both of those. First of all, the content of the parable, or the context, I should say, where we find it in this portion of Scripture. As I've already said, it was after the Jewish rejection of the king, and therefore by default the kingdom. And we see in chapter 4, verse 1, that there was a change of approach of the Lord Jesus now in his ministry after the Jews had rejected him. He went to the seaside. He left the synagogue teaching. Now he broadens his ministry, and now from that moment on, he teaches these parables regarding the kingdom of God in the interim period when he would leave his disciples. And he gives in total seven parables of the kingdom, and all seven are found in Matthew 13. But when you look at Matthew 13, you find something out about them. That they're all connected, and they're connected as a complete whole. In other words, there's a a theme running through them. And when you look at the previous two parables in Matthew 13, before the one we're looking at today in Mark 4, you find that both of them have to do with the rejection of God's word. Not the success of the sowing of the seed of the kingdom, but the fact that God's word would be rejected. And we can even see that here in Mark 4 uh, in the parable of the, the sower, the seed, and the soil. Then not only is there the context that it seems all to do with rejecting God's word, but the content of this parable wouldn't seem to indicate to us that it's talking about the success of the church uh, spreading across the world. Mustard seeds were the smallest of seeds, Jesus says, to be sown in the earth. And many skeptics have said that proves that Jesus wasn't the son of God because a mustard seed isn't the smallest seed that you can get. What the Lord was speaking of was in Palestine, 
concerning the usage of seeds in his day, it was the smallest seed generally that could be bought and sown. But mustard seeds didn't grow into great trees that we read of in this parable. They grew into bushes. Now, admittedly, some could grow to about 12 or 15 feet. But for that to happen, it was unnatural, abnormal growth. This was a herb seed that should grow to a herb plant, not a great tree. And you remember in Genesis 1 of creation, God said, The earth will bring forth grass and herb yielding seed after his kind and tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. And God saw that it was good. Now, if this mustard seed grew to a great tree with branches in which birds could nest, it was not after its kind. You understand? This mustard seed was meant to grow to be just a bush. So if it was growing to be a tree, this was unhealthy growth. Not only is there that aspect to the content of the parable, but we've got to account for the birds that are in the branches here. And in verse 15, where we have the parable of the sower, you see that the Lord interpreting the birds there, snatching away the seed, he tells us, that these birds are Satan and his emissaries who snatch the seed of the word of God from people's hearts. Now, remember, both of these parables were taught on the same day. And it would seem unlikely that the birds here mean something different than the birds in the parable of the seed, the sower, and the soil. Now, we're left to interpret it, as, as I said, ourselves. And it's difficult. But we have to remember this principle of Bible interpretation and it will help us not only here, but in many instances of difficult portions of the word of God. Scripture is its own interpreter. Do any other scriptures help us to understand what this parable means? Well, yes. When we turn to Daniel 4, we find there, you can turn to it or just listen as I read it. Daniel speaks of a vision. And this vision was seen of a great tree in the midst of the earth. And the height thereof was great. Verse 10 of chapter 4, the tree grew, was strong, and the height thereof reached unto heaven, and the sight thereof of the end was, sight thereof to the end of the earth. And the leaves thereof were fair, and the fruit thereof much. And in it was meat food for all. The beasts of the field had shadow under it, and the fowls of heaven dwelt in the boughs thereof, and all the flesh was fed of it. And then verse 22 of the same chapter. It is thy, O king, Daniel said to the emperor, that art grown and become strong, so thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven, and thy dominions to the end of the earth. Now that tree there, Daniel interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream and told him, you're the tree, God has given you your kingdom, and it has spread across the whole world. Kingdom of Babylon. Now when we go to Ezekiel 31, we find the same figure used by God. This time, the cedar tree representing the Assyrian Empire. Ezekiel 31.3 Behold, the Assyrian was a cedar in Lebanon, with fair branches and with a shadowing shroud, and of a an high stature, and his top was among the thick boughs. Verse 6, all the fowls of heaven made their nests in his boughs, and under his branches did all the beasts of the field bring forth their young, and under his shadow dwelt all great nations. Now, if this figure is similar, and it certainly is, 
This mustard tree seems to, in a sense, be an imitation of a great world power. It aspires to greatness beyond its means. It's reaching to heaven, but it's firmly rooted in the earth. And it is harboring these birds, which already in the context refer to demonic forces. I believe the birds here in this parable are the key to the interpretation. We have to say, if we're going to be consistent, that if these birds represent evil activities of Satan in the first parable, they must do so here. And also to be consistent with the Lord's clue to understanding parables. Remember, he gave us a clue as to how we could understand the rest of the parables in verse 13. I think it is of chapter 4. Look at it. He said unto them, after giving the parable of the seed and the soils and the sower, Know ye not that this parable... Know ye not this parable, and how then will ye know all parables? There's a key to understanding this parable of the sower that will help us in the others, particularly the mystery parables of the kingdom. The birds are the natural enemies of the sower. They were in the first parable, and we have to conclude they are in this fourth one. That fits in with the rest of the Bible, isn't it? Ephesians 2 verse 2 tells us that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians 6 and verse 12 tells us there are principalities and powers, rulers in heavenly places who are dictating to rulers in earthly places and influencing our whole society uh, in many strata. But when we go to the very last book of the Bible, we see that these figures are intact also. And when we turn to Revelation 18 and verse 2, we find the final phase of Christendom. Uh, When I speak of Christendom, I'm talking about the outward profession of Christianity as opposed to true Christianity where there are genuine born-again believers. Revelation 18 tells us that Babylon the Great will be an eclectic religious movement that will incorporate, establish Christendom. And these birds in verse 2 are seen in cages In that system which they sought to develop, look at it. He cried mightily with a strong voice saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. It would seem that birds in these contexts depict the way of false teachers, false professors, often mentioned by Paul and by Peter and John and their epistles and the other apostles. So what is the lesson in the teaching of this parable? Well, it's simple. It's to do with the growth of the kingdom. Though the kingdom of God was a little insignificant, it would seem small mustard-like seed, sown by Christ and the apostles, it would grow to such an extent in the outward capacity that it would succeed on worldly terms to such an extent that it would unhealthily, unnaturally, and abnormally grow to an empire in which its enemies could even shelter a nest. Maybe that seems an extreme interpretation to you, but... It's not when you look at Matthew 13 and the other parables of the mystery of the kingdom, particularly Matthew 13, 47 to 50, where there is the parable of the dragnet, that the bigger the net becomes, the greater the chance of catching both good 
and bad thing. The external nature of professed Christendom. The external nature of the kingdom of God. That's the parable's teaching. Now what's the prophetic message? Because we, we have to assume that because these parables are speaking of the interim period when the Lord Jesus has left, having been crucified, risen, and ascended, until when he comes again, this in-between period, these all have a prophetic message for us. And we've heard them already about the sowing of the seed, how God works. The prophetic message here is, yes, certainly there was, I admit, great growth in early apostolic days, Pentecost and days after. Read the Acts of the Apostles. It wasn't long after those days of early revival blessing until Satan's ministers boldly invaded the church, the early church of Jesus Christ. Now, we have proof of that because First and Second Corinthians were written because of, as Paul puts it, ministers of light who were really angels of darkness, messengers of Satan who invaded the church, false apostles, prophets, etc. So even in apostolic days... Just after the little seed had been sown and was only starting to sprout, the professing churches then were already departing from apostolic truth. And the case in point of that is where Paul said in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 15, All who are in Asia have departed from me. They've forsaken me. This is the great apostle that signed his name to about 13 letters in the New Testament. And they didn't want anything to do with him. Two writers have said something interesting on this. F.W. Grant says, Men that quote to us the Christianity of 100 or 200 years from that moment, that is, when Asia turned away from Paul, they have need to pause and ask themselves what type of it they are following whether that of degenerate Asia or honorable, in quotation marks, worldly Corinth or what else. Robert Govet says, How preposterous then to take the actual conditions of the church at any time after the apostles' decease as a model of what it ought to be. Because even in Paul's day, it was starting to depart. That's why we need to get back to the Bible, not the church fathers or patistic scholars, but the Bible. The Apostles' Doctrine is our creed. But this sowing of the seed began with a persecuted minority of Jesus, the Lord, and his apostles. And they were called by the Lord, the little flock. Now then something happened. They became more popular. And Christianity began to be embraced by governments. And even became the state religion of the Roman Empire. And so this little mustard seed was sown and began to grow. And then its growth accelerated externally to an abnormal, unnatural, unusual extent. Professing Christendom that would become a roosting place for all kinds of false teachers and false professors. This parable is about the outward form of the kingdom of God that existed not long after our Lord departed. Existed right throughout church history and exists today and is with us now. Now, 
there are at least two mysteries that we, we can locate or we'll have time to, to do today that's found in this parable. And I think you'll, you'll have to agree with me. The first is that from the teachings and precepts of the Lord Jesus, a great kingdom externally could grow into an empire that possesses governments. Think of the Vatican City. Armies that have butchered people through the Crusades and treasuries that are an indictment to our Christian charity. What a mystery that from this poor Galilean carpenter there should grow such a great tree across this world. The second mystery is that the visible church should, that ought to make war against Christ's enemies are actually, through their success, becoming a roosting place of haven for them. It's astounding, isn't it? Who would ever have dreamt that this could happen from that little mustard seed that Christ sowed of the kingdom? Who dreamt? Christ prophesied it. He said it would happen. It did happen in the early church in his letters to the seven churches. He spoke of it happening. Critiqued it. And now it is with us. We need to be aware of it. Well, you might say, well, that's all very interesting. Now I understand the parable. And uh, I have assessed the prophetic message that is behind it. But so what? Well, here's the so what the principle for today. And I want to give this to you in a twofold manner. First of all, the principle in this parable for the church. And secondly, the principle for the Christian. Our Lord is teaching in this parable that there cannot, I repeat, cannot be worldly greatness in this age without giving occasion to the devil. Let me repeat that. There cannot be worldly greatness in this age without giving occasion to the devil. There will indeed come a time, in the future that is, of greatness and glory in the kingdom of God to the saints. Daniel prophesies in the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom. Under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. But now that is not our charge. So I said to the Corinthians, now you're rich, now you're increased in knowledge, but it ought not to be so now. That's coming in a day, but not now. Our orders are in 1 Peter 5 and verse 6. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. The time is not now. That's profound. Let me repeat it once more. There cannot be worldly greatness in this age without giving occasion to the devil. Now here's the lesson for the church. And I'm only giving you this for your consideration. You can reject it, of course. But I think regarding churches, smaller is probably better than greater. The world's success syndrome, which measures everything by numbers, has thoroughly engulfed the church, whereas God's word says the opposite. This parable, but you can look elsewhere, Gideon's army was reduced from 32,000 to 300 so that the victory would be attributed to divine power alone. Jesus chose 12 disciples. Think about that. 
Not 12,000. He could have chosen 12,000. But he chose 12. Because the emphasis in scripture is quality, not quantity. Depth, not breadth. And let me add a caveat to that. That does not mean that there is a virtue in smallness when the smallness is a result of apathy or lack of spirituality or prayer or sowing the seed of the kingdom and seeking to reap it. That's not what we're talking about. But we must not make the mistake of thinking that largeness is something good and something even spiritual in the kingdom of God. It may be on a very rare occasions, but generally the rule is small is better. Largeness, of course, if we had time to go into it, in churches can create practical problems for leadership and pastoral care. But what the Lord's point here, I believe, is there is grave spiritual danger when externally the kingdom of God grows large. I'm going to be quoting in our closing moments Vans Havner an awful lot who has a great deal to say on this matter. This is what he says. The church has moved from the catacombs to the Colosseum in its emphasis on size. We stage mammoth demonstrations and gigantic convocations. We put celebrities on the platform and borrow from Caesar to enhance the banner of Christ. We've gone crazy over bigness. Actually, we need a thinning instead of a thickening. I learned long ago that growing corn or cotton must be thinned. We reduce the quality to improve, or reduce the quantity to improve the quality. Gideon had the thinnest troops, and a similar procedure might help God's army today. Jesus thinned his crowd, as is recorded in the sixth chapter of John, and doubtless there was many another occasion. Today, the persecuted minority has become the popular majority. When one of the largest Protestant denominations was having a drive for its members, uh, it adopted a slogan, 1984, a million more in 84. And one minister leaned over to another when the catchy title was announced and whispered, if we get a million more like the ones we have, we're sunk. It's not about numbers. We all fall into this trap. Real success, the Lord is telling us of a church and of his kingdom is not found in the number of members but in their holiness. No matter how few they may be, John Wesley had it right, do not give me the big ecclesiastical battalions. Give me a hundred men who fear nothing but sin and love nothing but God and I will shake the gates of hell. Vance Havner, again, as long as the church wore scars, they made headway when they began to wear medals. The cause languished. It was a greater day for the church when Christians were fed to the lions than when they bought season tickets and sat in the grandstand. It is wrong to win banners and raise quotas rather than to know God. Better to have small, growing spiritual assemblies than large, unwielding, unprincipled ones. That's the message of this parable for the church. Small is probably better than big. But there's a message in this and a principle for the Christians. I find this quote, can't allocate it to anyone, but it really sums up this parable to all of us if we'll take it to heart today. It goes like this. The beginning of greatness is to be little. The little mustard seed. 
The increase of greatness is to be less. And the perfection of greatness is to be nothing. The beginning of greatness is to be little. The increase of greatness is to be less. And the perfection of greatness is to be nothing. Pride is the great Christian evangelical sin. It was a sin that made the devil the devil. Therefore, being the parent sin, he aspired pride to be like God in heaven. Then he, in his fall, tempted Adam and Eve and overcame them, and pride entered into their hearts and into the human gene. And as William MacDonald puts it, the sad result is that every one of us has enough to sink a fleet. I know the pride that's in my heart. Whereas our Lord Jesus, who sowed the mustard seed, was humble in his birth, humble in his life, in his death, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He humbled himself to the manger and even to Calvary's tree. But I am so proud and unwilling his humble disciple to be. Was thy saviour meek and lowly? And will I, with such a, a worm as I, weak and sinful and unholy, dare to lift my head on high? Hans Havner has so much worth to say. He says, why did the Son of God spend all those years in a woodworker's shop? Why did he not visit Rome and Athens and Alexandria and lecture in the great world centers? And why did he spend by far the greater portion of his earthly life as a carpenter? It does not add up on our little computers in this publicity mad era of the mass media when people will do anything under the sun to land on the front page and show up on television. We would have had our Lord come to the earth full grown, a world traveler, university lecturer. Think what the news media could have done for him. Instead, when he performed a miracle, he said, don't tell it. His brothers urged him to get out of the backwoods and up onto the boulevards, and he needed a, a good press agent. Listen to this. He did miracles and never advertised them. Today we advertise them but cannot do them. Jeremiah put it like this. Do you seek great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Christ didn't. That's the point. Who do we follow? The Christian church. Christian history. We follow Christ. Wouldst thou be great, then lowly serve. Wouldst thou go up, go down. But go as low as e'er you will. The highest has gone lower still. C.H. McIntosh says there is always the utmost danger when a man or his work becomes remarkable. He may be sure Satan is gaining his objective when attention is drawn to aught or anyone but the Lord Jesus himself. A work may be commenced in the greatest possible simplicity, but through lack of holy watchfulness and spirituality on the part of the workman, 
he himself or the results of his work may attract general attention and he may fall into the snare of the devil. Satan's grand ceaseless object is to dishonor the Lord Jesus. And if he can do this by what seems to be Christian service, he has achieved all the greater victory for that time. What is the lesson for the Christian, for the church in this parable of the growth of the mustard seed? Human greatness exposes us to Satan's attacks. What's the lesson? Someone said to me very early in my Christian life, when you see a ladder, don't climb up it, climb down it. That's hard to do. F.B. Myers said of that great evangelist D.L. Moody, and you know how God used him. Moody is a man who never seems to have heard of himself. No wonder God used him so wonderfully. A Keswick speaker put it like this on one occasion. There's nothing God cannot do if we keep our hands off the glory. The parable of the growth of the mustard seed. The early church, our Lord and his disciples, sowing it, it growing at Pentecost and subsequent years. And then not long after the first century, even before it turned, the rot started. The external trees started to grow to such greatness that all the Lord's enemies could nest in it. Do we learn the lesson today? Can you say, Christian, can I say, give me to serve in a humble sphere. I ask not aught beside, content to fill a little place, if God be glorified. Wesley, the hymn writer, said, never let the world break in. Fix a mighty gulf between, keep me little and unknown, prized and loved by God alone. You know the Moravians. I hope you do. I've told you about them. Really, in the modern era, they were the ones who revived missionary endeavor. They affected John Wesley greatly so that he ended up going across the whole world, really, as his parish, preaching the gospel. The early Moravians had a prayer slogan, and it was this. It sums up our Lord's parable of the growth of the mustard seed. It sums up the message that the Lord has to my heart and yours today. It goes like this. From the unhappy desire of becoming great, good Lord, deliver us. Amen. Lord, we have been redeemed, born again, not just that we might go to heaven, but that we might be Christ's disciples here on the earth. Lord, let us not keep our lives and lose it, but let us lose our lives and find them and seek first the kingdom of God. Lord, this is so piercing to my heart. 
and it should be to all our hearts. Give us the help and the grace, having heard your word, to obey the truth. To the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.